0: really it's to help people find love creating love again in this world finding ways to bring love back into curriculum bringing love back into the classroom bringing love to the children because where the world is going the skills our children need are to love are to understand is to tolerate is to have a conversation Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds.
1: Dreaming radically is a necessity if we are to reach a world of liberation for all marginalized peoples. Imagining the world we want to see and then fighting like hell to go and get it.
0: Dream Radically is a hope, a strategy, a goal of altering the status quo. In our
1: quest for social transformation, join us on this journey.
0: Let's, Let's dream. dream
1: y'all. My name is Kelly Pyron Alvarez and I'm an educational specialist with Foundation for Liberating Minds. I will be your host today. I'm joined today by Jamana S4. Today we'll be talking broadly about trauma. So Jamana, I just want to welcome you to the Dream Radically podcast and thank you for joining me today for this conversation. I'm really excited to be here today. Thank you for
0: having me. So Jamana, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm a first-generation American. I've grown up mostly in the Middle East and returned to the States in 2012 to attend university at NYU. Uh, My father's Lebanese. Uh, My mom is Belgian. I moved to Oklahoma in 2016 with Teach for America, and I have really developed a deep love for understanding the psychology of trauma and narrative within my teaching career.
1: So a few months ago, you know, in class, we had this conversation about trauma. What is trauma? How does it
0: impact us? So I was wondering if you could kind of help me define what trauma is. Trauma is really hard to define because it's unique to each person and everyone kind of has their own experiences with it. There's a lots of different types of trauma as well. I remember when we were talking in class, we talked about like linguistic trauma where you're being suppressed within your own language being able to articulate or use words from a language that has now been racialized or radicalized. For instance, using Arabic and you know being able to say the word Allah, which just means God, and being able to put that out in public is a very different situation than using God in America. Then you have you know the normal kind of trauma that you can think of, which is like physical, sexual, and emotional, and that's normally associated with domestic. So you have two different types of trauma mostly, one of them being acute and one of them being over time. So some of them happen instantly. Car crash, the Beirut bombing on August 4th. Those are traumas that are immediate, that happen once, and they most likely won't happen again. Then you have the prolonged types of trauma that happen recurring, that constantly happen over and over and over again. And the way it impacts your psychology and your own identity is significant. And so it's hard to define within that kind of, you know, sphere, especially because everyone internalizes things differently because it all comes down to the support systems you have and the way that you are being nurtured along with, I think, a bit of your own nature. So I think one of the best
1: ways to talk about trauma and explore trauma is not necessarily by defining it. Mm -hmm. It does help. But by working through like examples, right? Yes. Yes. You kind of talked a little bit about linguistic trauma earlier. I want to talk about that a little bit more just because it's so interesting. And I don't think a lot of people even know what linguistic trauma is. I never even thought of
0: it until our conversation a few months ago. When I think of linguistic trauma, I really think about the way that we racialize language the way that we expect students to speak, the way that we're even expected to have a conversation here. There are certain vocabulary and tiered words that you're encouraged to use. So, you know, I can't be sitting out here cussing out and, you know, flipping into English and Arabic because no one would really understand what I'm saying. That wouldn't be necessarily traumatic. However, once when you apply that kind of linguistic oppression in the classroom, that can affect the identity that over time can build a trauma. Because what you're ultimately telling a child who's code switching between African-American vernacular, between Spanish, between their own native tongue, is that your n- language is not important. That part of your identity is not important. The way you speak is wrong. And there's a whole other like tangent that I don't even think we got into in class about how people who monitor grammar online is a form of classism. Because the way you text and the way you type even is able to demonstrate your literacy. It's able to demonstrate the way you speak. It shows parts of your identity. And when people come on and harbor that and attack it, even though it might not be on the surface like most apparent trauma. And, you know, we're kind of using it in a completely new way. We're thinking about it in a new form of narrative and a new form of rhetoric. But, you know, it is impacting them. And one of the strongest examples, I think, of how we did this in America was the boarding schools for the Native Americans, because in the Native American boarding schools, it wasn't just the removal of language that our Native citizens had to go through, but it was followed with sexual, physical and emotional abuse. So tying them together, you have literally ripped away a part of their identity and oppressed it and traumatize them and people don't recognize the power of how language oppression does that yeah so
1: when things like that happen it's like oh well here's like not only are you experiencing this trauma but there's this other trauma that you're going to now associate with it Mm -hmm. so when even just one thing happens it's going to trigger all of these different traumatic
0: responses exactly so I mean going back into examples I think of the prayer calls in Islam Which can be very triggering for a lot of people because that's very heavily associated with terrorism. So while I find it very comforting because it's, you know, some I hear it like church bells. I go home, I hear it like church bells. It's like, oh, it's four o'clock in the morning, you know, and it's kind of like a clock because it goes off five times a day. But to someone who has associated that with a negative event like 9-11 and is like, well, you know, feeding into this Islamophobia, they're going to hear it and they're going to have a triggering reaction. And Muslim person in America is also going to have a triggering reaction when someone's like, you can't say those words, you can't say your prayers, we're going to come into your mosques and we're going to remove you from it, which is what happened in 2001. I remember sitting in front of the TV watching the news in New York where they were ripping Muslim citizens out of the mosques and I remember the drama, for lack of a better word right now, that came with developing the mosque by ground zero. And I actually went to Ground Zero and I went to the new mosque. And it's, you know, more peaceful now. But there is still that linguistic trauma on both ends. Not to, you know, sympathize with America, but it was still a traumatic event, nine eleven. Well, that makes us think, too, of how we respond to trauma, right? So, like, the way that we
1: respond to trauma depends on how we've been socialized, the communities that we're in, the ideas that have been spread over yeah. time, right? How we've internalized different ideas so the way white americans experience the trauma of 9-11 is not the same way as muslim americans have
0: experienced that kind of trauma exactly it was very different and i was in the states in 2001 when it happened and i remember because my dad was my soccer coach him and another white man i'll leave his name out for privacy reasons but they were coaching together after 9-11 all of a sudden my dad wasn't allowed to coach with us anymore All of a sudden, he wasn't, you know, allowed to come to our games anymore. All of a sudden, I, the only goalie on the team, wasn't allowed to be goalie anymore. I wasn't starting anymore. I couldn't play the positions. The only time I could do that was when this head coach was out of the picture. And I remember crying and being very confused about it because as a six-year-old kid, you're kind of like, what happened? One day, my dad's with me, and the next day, he's no longer allowed on the team because he's not even Muslim. My dad is Arab he's Lebanese, like, you know, we fall in the minority of being Christians. But there was still that experience. And his reaction, the head coach's reaction came from the way that he internalized the events, the way he had now seen my dad. So I can understand what he was doing. But I still don't think that was the right reaction. Because the best way to deal with trauma, and I've got a bunch of books in front of me, All four of the books stress that the most important thing to deal with trauma, to help a child, to help the classroom, to make it a safer place, is to listen to the child, to understand the child, and to love the child regardless. And when you stop listening and when you stop loving or you hinder that ability, you are worsening the situation to an extent or not aiding to it. Definitely. And I think we can also see in, you know, some of the things that
1: you've said as well as how Like, we're talking about linguistic trauma, but this opens it up to so many other types of trauma as well, right? So some of the other types of trauma that you described were racial trauma, religious trauma,
0: classroom trauma, educational trauma. Yeah.
1: So trauma is so multifaceted, and we don't even think about the connections sometimes.
0: No, and I think as educators especially, we don't realize how violent our classrooms can be. The system does reproduce trauma because the classroom is violent. The inherent violence of the classroom comes from the structures and the teaching that educators go through. So as a teacher, it's my responsibility to make sure that my students are meeting goals, standards, objectives, that they're ready to go into the next class, that they're able to read and they're able to do math and they're able to do all these things that we're deeming from them. At the same time, It's very hard to let go of the self almost because it's been a five-year process for me. To learn to let go of myself completely when a child is having a moment and realizing that this child in this moment is reacting to something I've said. They're reacting to something that has happened in this classroom. And they are a little body with little words who don't understand their feelings to the full extent because feelings are hard even for adults to understand not always know why they're being triggered so they can't even tell you like this is why you upset me and so they're going to do something that you don't like and that's where the structures of oppression come into the classroom that makes it violent because the normal response to a child having a tantrum to a child trying to tell you something in a violent way which is generally violent because that is what you are showing the child. Children mirror. So if your classroom is angry, your child is going to act angry. If your classroom is positive, they're going to eventually learn how to react in that situation as well. Regardless, what ends up happening in the classroom is we punish the child right away. There's an immediate consequence. You yelled at me. Now I'm going to yell at you. All right, you're still yelling at me okay, so now I'm going to send you to the principal's office and you're going to go home and you're going to get this punishment at home. And the whole time, the child's voice still has not been heard. Even though it's easy to think that the child's voice was heard because they responded, they said something back, you just didn't like the way they said it. And that's where the problem comes in. It's that response. It's how do you choose as an adult to respond to a child? Because you might not even realize what that child's thinking and that goes beyond trauma as well this could just be an angry child this could just be a child who's like i'm really tired today like there might not be extra baggage there may be tons of it but the child in that moment is telling you something and when you react like the child or in childlike ways you're adding fuel to the fire exactly right and then that follows
1: students from the time they start kindergarten all the way through And I don't want to, like, talk about kids too much just because, you know, privacy issues and things like that. But I do want to talk about trauma in education because that's a really big issue. And I think it's overlooked a lot because especially at universities, you know, we attend a primarily white institution. So the trauma that we see in classrooms isn't the same trauma that other students see Mm -hmm. or other professors see. So I'm wondering, how do you see trauma in education coming up through, you know, secondary and then into post-secondary
0: institutions? That's a large question. There are so many different ways that that comes into it. On my drive here, the real big thought on my head was the way that we teach character traits to children who are traumatized. So the big thing right now is trying to push like trauma-informed teaching. It's a great concept. Again, the premise of it is you listen to the child, you love the child, and you meet the child at an appropriate age level. So even if the child is seven years old, if they're acting like they're two, you meet them there. You give them what they are at mentally, not necessarily where they are at physically. It's a hard concept to grasp with because when you're looking at a seven-year-old kid and they're acting out like a two-year-old throwing a tantrum, it's really easy to be like, no, and then consequence the child, right? All of that to say, we teach and we prescribe words onto children. We tell this child, you need to be resilient. When you tell a child that they need to be resilient, you're forgetting that they already are resilient. That's a quality they already have because they are surviving every day. They are going through their day. They are healing on their own. They have their own friends. They have their own community. They are resisting. They are resilient. They are thriving in their own ways. So to come to a child and constantly tell them, you need to be this, you need to do that, you need to be these traits, and then show the white kids who are successful in those traits in a different light, creates an identity issue that is very hard to articulate. That's very hard to like even discuss because it's so self-internalized, I think, to an extent. Trauma in itself right now is such a It's such a hype word. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone wants to be participating in it. Everyone wants to be trauma-informed. And there are a lot of efforts right now to, you know, provide kids with trauma-informed teaching. But the premise of its structure is going to look completely different. And it moves beyond the PBIS. It moves beyond love and logic. When you're doing trauma-informed teaching, you really need to get out of your own head. You need to look at that child and you need to be understanding of exactly why they are doing that in their head, being like, okay, they're not mad at me. They're not mad at their friends. They're mad at a situation that they don't know how to say. And we are not giving our children the voice to advocate for themselves. You have to allow the children to advocate for themselves. So that move from secondary to higher education is that it's in secondary education when you're thinking about high schools moving into colleges and things like that our high school babies still don't fully have a voice you see it on the news where high school students are getting in arguments with teachers because a teacher said something and now the child's disrespectful and all of a sudden they're suspended you see it with i'm sure in your own experiences where you just had that one teacher who just never let you speak who never let you talk who you know you hated Because it's like you go to that teacher and you're like, that teacher made me feel small. And we're doing that. And then all of a sudden they're getting into higher education and we're expecting them to be open and honest about their trauma. You know, when they're applying to the schools, please tell us about it. Please write about the most saddest moment in your life and tell us why that makes you worthy of being here in this space. And then now that you're in this space because you advocated for yourself through your own trauma, Through your own defining, again, words that we are placing onto them, words that we are using to describe children, words that they don't want to be described by because the child is much more than what that incident or incidences are. That is a part of them, it's not the whole part. And to just limit that child to that and then have them come into a world where all of a sudden you can speak back, you can advocate, we've already set them up for failure because how are you going to be able to come into a college classroom? where you've been shushed your whole life, you've been told you can't speak back, you can't vocalize your ideas, and all of a sudden now you're telling me I can somewhat? It's confusing. It's a weird space to be in. I've been in that space. I remember I was sitting in NYU in my human rights class, and to be honest, I almost left that class not believing in human rights anymore because I was like, this is the most oppressive thing in the world. Like We are imposing values of Western white supremacy onto third world countries or developing countries and then telling them that these are the rights that you have to have while at the same time not applying them in the United States of America. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense to me. But I had gone into a whole argument with a girl in the class because she was trying to tell me that the hijab was oppressive. And I was like, well, it's probably as oppressive as you feeling the need to wear your high heels. Because if you have to wear those high heels that are five inches high and Louboutins, by the way, who these designers come out and said he wants you know your feet to hurt... For male attention, how is the hijab any different? Also, who are you to judge something that you don't understand because you don't like it? So, again, it gets really complicated because when you start looking at the unique things of racial trauma, specifically and linguistic trauma, you have all these other undertones and other things that are happening, which is why I could talk forever on this because I have a thousand and one things to say.
1: Oh, I do too, especially like on religious trauma. Ooh. <laughs> So many different types of trauma, and there's so many different conversations to be had and different ways to understand trauma and to see the different connections. And I think some of what you were saying, too, was like it's really important for us to understand when we see students demonstrating a response to trauma, but it's also really hard as an educator for us to be like, to not call up our own trauma mm-hmm. in teaching. And that's been really hard for me, especially, you know, as a as a high school teacher— In a in a past life. Right. I experienced a traumatic event and it never occurred to me that the traumatic event was because my student had trauma. Right. Yeah. So in the school I was in, students weren't allowed to have cell phones and my student was failing my class. They weren't doing well. They had their phone out. I'm like, you know, you have to put your phone away. It was an ongoing issue. I'm like, put it away. or I'm taking it up and it's going to the office. And the student was like, if you take my phone, I'm going to slit your throat. Never once occurred to me that they had their own trauma that, you know, led to that response. But now I'm traumatized. I'm like, you should have done your like, you know, it's baffling. Right. And there's all these different things that come into play here that we don't always think about.
0: Yes. And it's again, as an educator, I think it becomes even harder because you have to be able to deal with that. But also take yourself out of it and try and understand where the child is coming from and then put yourself back in it. And it's just like this constant self-reflection. So I think a lot of trauma-informed teaching is actually self-reflection. You have to be constantly reflecting on yourself as an educator. And it's okay, you're going to make mistakes. Like my first class, I don't know why those kids love me. I really, I like, I cannot tell you. I threw myself down on the floor one day and I said, this is how you're acting and threw an entire tantrum because I was like, I don't know what to do. Like at this point, I don't know what to do. So especially as a teacher, when you're a first-year teacher, you don't know. You really don't know what you're doing. It's a blind guess, a trial and error. But it's being able to look back at that moment, being like, hmm, why was that not the right response? Besides the fact you're an adult, how could you have handled that better? And then accessing the resources the schools do have, because even though public education is limited in what we have, We still have instructional coaches who are able to help guide you. We still have books that you can read. You can do your own research. You can do your own self-reflection. You are the only person who can make yourself a better educator. And I think it's challenging for veteran teachers who've been in the process for the last 20 years who have been told one thing. This is the way that they have been told. This is the way that they were taught. They came up with zero tolerance. You know, they came into the work field being like, we don't tolerate anything. This is the way we're going to handle it. And all of a sudden we're doing 180 and we're telling them, no, you actually have to understand this child and you have to be tolerant to them. That's also a hard place for veteran teachers to be in because it's like, what do you mean? I've been doing my job the whole wrong. What do you mean now? All of a sudden I have to reflect on myself. That's a hard place to be in as an adult and as a child. So there's a lot of moving factors that are in there. Definitely. And I
1: think we can see a lot, too, on how to deal with trauma. We've primarily talked about education and linguistic trauma, but a lot of the conversation, too, is like, oh, these are things that I can start thinking about to process other types of trauma. Mm-hmm. Right. A lot of introspection, a lot of reflection, a lot of looking for resources and talking through things with people. Right. There's different ways to deal with trauma and approach trauma And we have to find something that works for us so that we don't reproduce trauma.
0: (laughs) Exactly. I also just think that trauma is kind of inherently human. We're just going to do it accidentally one day, sometimes with intent, sometimes, you know, not. But Dr. Perry's biggest point, or at least my biggest takeaway from Dr. Perry, is that the most healing relationships you have are with people you love. And the most therapeutic relationships you have are with people you love. So it's, again, going back to fostering those loving relationships, teaching children how to love again, not robbing them of that love and curiosity in the classroom like we do when we yell at them, but encouraging them, loving them. And it seems so simple, but as an adult, it's hard to love yourself. And without that introspect, like you said, without that self-love, without that loving community, it's really challenging to even bring it into the classroom. And I've noticed the days I don't love myself the most are the days my kids act the craziest. Hands down. They are going to be off the walls. And then I come in the next day and I'm like, hmm, I like myself again. So they mirror. They mirror that. Definitely.
1: Like kids mirror our emotions, our energies. Adults do as well, right? And it's important that we love ourselves and that we learn to love ourselves with all of our flaws, all of our traumas, all of our wonderful attributes. Right. But it's also important that we love others yeah. because we can't build those relationships if we don't love one another. And it's especially hard right now.
0: It is. It's a hard it's a hard world right now. It's hard to find love for people who are different. And it's not just racially different. It's politically different right now. That's what I'm challenged. Like I'm challenged. I find it really hard to find patience and understanding for people who fundamentally are so radically different to my beliefs it's like okay let me take my moment let me breathe let me think about what made you go there like why would you choose to believe that and then having that conversation of like you know what you have that perception you have that narrative because again I could go on a whole tangent because my whole entire master's thesis is going to be on how narratives impact all of this so how the narrative you tell the narrative you're told impacts us And even Joe Biden the other day was on the national news telling about how if a lie is told enough, it becomes the truth. And it's true because if you tell yourself a story over and over again and the community around you is telling that story and story again, that's your narrative. That's your identity. And to tell someone, no, your identity is wrong, is also traumatizing. Even if there are fundamental issues with it, even if there are problematic issues with it even if they're wrong, you can't go up to them and be like, nah, you're wrong, bra." <laughs> you just you can't.
1: <laughs> right. No, nothing good has ever come from that ever.
0: <laughs> no. I mean, there are sometimes I wish I could just be like, nah, brah, you're wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: So I have one more question for yeah. you. What is your radical
0: dream? It's going to sound super hippie. It's going to be really, you know, flower child. But really, it's help people find love, creating love again in this world, finding ways to bring love back into curriculum, bringing love back into the classroom, bringing love to the children. Because where the world is going, the skills our children need are to love, are to understand, is to tolerate, is to have a conversation, especially with technology. So my, I guess, radical dream is to teach love and have it not just from me but within everyone within the education system
1: thank you jamana for joining us on dream radically i enjoy learning with you and i look forward to working with you more in the future
0: thank you so much for having me here today i really enjoyed this conversation i really look forward to having more of them with you thank you for listening the dream radically podcast brought to you by the foundation for liberating minds Learn more about the work of Foundation for Liberating Minds at our website, foundationforliberatingminds.org, our social media pages at Foundation4LM, and consider getting connected with the podcast and all our members by supporting this work through our Patreon, patreon.com slash foundation4lm. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate the pod wherever you're listening. Power, and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.